internet. And this one exemplifies some of how I felt and maybe some of how you felt. You know, you're kind of in your room or in, in your in your house and you lock the door, even though your friends are trying to come in, even though you want to let them in, um, something kind of holds you back. And I wonder, when was the last time you felt like this? And so we're going to break off into groups of twos and threes. We do this oftentimes at Renew. And I would like for us to just kind of share the last time maybe you can identify with how I felt, that things kind of got difficult externally, and so you retreated inward, you ran away, you shut people out. All right, I'm going to give us a few minutes to do that, and then we'll walk into the sermon together. Make sure you don't leave anyone out uh, around you. All right, thanks so much for sharing. Really grateful for Pastor Dave walking through the life of David with us. He's just had some really amazing sermons. If I miss it on Sunday, I listen to it on podcasts. And it's such a blessing for me to listen and learn under another pastor at this church. It's just such a blessing. And when he walked through the life of David, we talked about Samuel anointing him as king. And then him fighting off Goliath. We spent two weeks there, his inner life and his outer victory. We talked about um, the valleys that he, he walked through. And now we're kind of taking a deeper look into the valley and then at his friendship with Jonathan, which will be the crux of the sermon. Now, when we talk about running away, getting, feeling afraid, locking people out, oftentimes we do that because we're, we're scared, right? We got hurt and um, all our defenses are up. And I think about David in this point of his life. Man, he was hurt. He was running. He was, he was probably wrestling with depression. We have after David killing Goliath and then Saul sending him off on conquest, him being such a proficient military leader that the Philistines would just flee before him. It says in the Bible that he gave him such a hard blow that they just ran. And then there were these military processions where women would come out and dance and sing and everyone celebrating their victory. And then they heard the song, right? Saul heard the song as Pastor Dave was sharing. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And immediately we see Saul's heart turn against David. And he's starting to plot to destroy him. And so there's these narratives um, in verse, verse chapter 18 and 19 that we see Saul going after David. If you have your Bibles, you could open it up and look at it in its uh, entirety. But he tried to pin David to the wall with the spear two times while David's leading worship to, like, soothe this evil demon that was plaguing Paul. Can you imagine Greg, like, playing worship and having to dodge spears at the same time? That's, like, a terrible work environment, right? I think as much as ministry has been difficult, I've never had a, like, spear catch. But it says that David eluded Saul twice as spears are being thrown at him. And maybe David's like, I don't know, he might just be angry, he has anger issues, he could have thrown the spear anywhere, it just happened to be towards me. But then as then Saul starts to plot and plan, and, and he's given David his daughter, but he says, but David has nothing to offer for his daughter. So Saul says, why don't you go to the Philistine town and kill 100 Philistines? And in a narrative, it says that he was hoping that the Philistines would kill David. And that he would be, like, absolved of any credibility damage from that. But David kills 100 Philistines. He comes back. And he marries Saul's daughter, which must have been really upsetting. And then he tells Jonathan, one of David's closest friends, maybe his best friend, 
to kill David in chapter 19. But Jonathan loves David. Jonathan's one of David's closest friends. So he pulls Saul out in the field, and he tells him, man, David's not done anything to harm you. He's helped our kingdom. And he convinces Saul to even swear by God that he would not harm David. But then a little later, we have Saul throwing another spear at David while he's trying to lead worship. So there's like three spears, one plot to fight 100 Philistines, another plot to be betrayed by your best friend. And all this time, I think David is like trying to make excuses. He wants to be loyal. He keeps showing up to the uh, king's court. And finally, in chapter 19, Saul sends men to kill him at his house. He says, go at night under the cover of darkness, and then stake out the home. When David comes out, ambush him and kill him. I mean, it was an extremely explicit command. David's wife hears about this, Saul's daughter, and he, she warns David, and somehow he's able to elude him. And I think about this moment in David's life where he's running. He's running from his home. He's running from the palace. He's running from his career um, Pastor David, <laughs> Dave talked about all the fortresses that were s- stripped away from him. But then he runs to Jonathan. And I think in those moments where you're wrestling with depression and you just, there's nothing to put on Facebook. Those moments where I remember getting an ACL surgery and in pain and, and people who came to visit me and wanted to pray for me, I, I, I just hated seeing them because I didn't want them to see me weak and in pain. What a blessing it is to have that one friend or two friends that you're willing to go to when you're running from everything else, that you're willing to let in when you're feeling plagued emotionally or when you're feeling like a failure or when you're in shame. That's the person David had. He had a Jonathan. He ran away from all these other things. He shut all these other people out but he had a person to run towards. And I wonder if we have that person in our life. Because when I think about how our society does friendship, social media, in in the worst of it, right, has pretty much plagued our definition and our concept of friend. According to to Facebook, I have like 3,000 friends, but Nina will make fun of me and have me scroll through and be like, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Met him in high school. He looks familiar. You know, it's like, these are not friends. <laughs> but, but we've defined friendship. And, and our, our view of friendship has become so shallow. It's like three miles deep, uh, three miles wide, but an inch deep. And we just kind of post these um, pictures of ourselves. We present ourselves in this really specific way right, where we're clean and shiny and we have a bunch of friends and we're accomplishing things. But inside, we know that they don't really know us. They don't know our struggles and it becomes kind of these chopped up arms that gives us thumbs up or puts on a sad face or says, we're praying for you. This is how, in many ways, we've defined friendship. They're superficial, they're thin, they're transient, I think amongst every generation, our generation struggles the most to understand what friendship looks like. I was talking to Mitchell Liu, and he's at a a film shoot, and he talks about how these rich people are kind of weird, right? So this guy who's probably backing the film goes up to Adam Sandler and says, hey, can you take some photos with me? 
and they end up doing this whole photo shoot where they go to like different places in, in the studio to take photos of different backgrounds. And then Adam looks at him and he's like, do you want me to change your shirt too? Kind of saying like, I get what you're doing, right? You're trying to take all these photos of me so that you could put it up on your timeline at like months at a time to say that we're friends when it's really just a one night stand, you know, one, one photo shoot opportunity. David and Jonathan have a totally different type of friendship. And as we walk through their narrative, I hope that it will redefine what friendship and community looks like for us. This is kind of, this is going backward um, to 1 Samuel 18 that sets the stage for David and Jonathan's friendship. David had just killed Goliath. Saul's wondering who he is. He says, you know, I'm the son of Jesse. And then after <laughs> David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan came, became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. This is before he was envious of David. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. When I look at their friendship, the first thing I see is that they made a covenant together. Their friendship had a commitment undergirding it. And a covenant is saying, I love you so much that I'm going to accept you and walk with you long term. It's not this fleeing thing. It's not this someone else is cooler and I'm jumping ship thing. It's this deep commitment to one another. And because David was of such lower class compared to Jonathan, who was going to take over the kingdom, Jonathan started lowering himself and elevating David, giving him his robe, which is basically saying, you're royalty, you're part of the family now. He's in, in many ways disarming himself, saying, I'm going to be vulnerable with you, giving him his sword and his bow. And I wonder, who are the people in our lives that we have made a covenant and a commitment to? Do we even step into relationship thinking about it in terms of a covenant and a commitment? Or is it something, again, fleeting and cheap and shallow? Like the worst of coffee meets bagel, right? You meet up with someone and you're barely committed enough to show up. And I think that's a snapshot. If it's a snapshot of how we do romance, it's a snapshot of how we do all relationships. So little investment. They're cheap and easy and fleeting. But David and Jonathan steps into a covenant together. I wonder if there's people in your life who you said, hey, let's commit to each other. Let me commit to you because I love you as brothers, as sisters. I remember the day I got married, I wrote a vow to Nina. But then I also wrote a vow to my groomsmen. We're sitting there before the wedding. We had strung up the lights. We have changed into tuxes. I was giving them their groomsmen gift. And before that, I told each one of them that I'm making a covenant with you. That if, you, if you're ever without a home, you could stay in my home. If your family is without a father, I will come and, and father your children if you, if you want that. If, you're, if your family does not have a table to eat at, you can come and join me at my table. Do we have and think about relationships and friendships not everyone, but a few with this idea of a covenant, with a commitment. 
Jesus committed to a small group of people, right? He had his three, uh, James, John, and Peter. How can we emulate the way that Jesus does friendship? Do we have three or four people that we've prioritized and said that you get most of me and the best of me and the most intimate and vulnerable places of me? You come first. And then a group of 12 that Jesus spent most of his time with that was in so many conversations that the crowd didn't get to hear, that the crowd didn't get to experience. And then he had his 72. Again, we live in a society where all of our friendships can easily be miles wide and an inch deep. How do we develop a few friends that we're committed to? You know, some people at Renew um, have told me it's really hard because I don't feel like I'm a part of a big group. Sometimes I feel left out when people go on trips. They don't invite me to big parties. But I just challenge them. I, I think don't focus on getting into a group. Focus on is there two or three people you want to invest in and be close friends with? Because that's so much better than having, I know Instagram, it's better to have like a bunch of people to pam and say, I have friends. Look at how many friends I have. I have a lot of friends. I'm not alone. I got friends, right? But Jesus is saying three, just three, 12. Give your best to them. And I think about the commitment we should have as a community as well. Committing to, um, Hebrews says, don't grow weary of regularly meeting together. And I wonder if we've committed to our small group or if we just come when it's convenient. I wonder if we've committed to this church or, or we're just critiquing it and a consumer and looking around to see which one's better. You know, when God calls us into a church, he's calling us into family. And I think as he calls us into this family, he's also calling a few people where he's saying, there's people here in your church family that you can have a Jonathan and David relationship with. Not everyone, but a few people where God will knit your, your hearts together. The second thing I see is this place of vulnerability and grace. Right when David sees him, he says, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father? Why is he trying to kill me? He just gives him a slew of questions because he's broken. He's hurting. And he doesn't know why his dad's trying to kill him. And then Jonathan says, never. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I've found favor in your eyes. He has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And so David and Jonathan is just bearing their hearts to one another. He's completely vulnerable and naked. He's willing to let him in into the depths of his pain and rejection. Godly friendship is commitment and grace that leads to vulnerability. You know, it's so easy to just put on a front, right? The real me is laying on the floor bleeding out, but the one that I'm showing everyone is put together and dancing and beautiful. And I think that's been the critique between Alcoholics Anonymous and church. In Alcoholics Anonymous and AA, you show up, and even just showing up says, I'm broken, I'm messed up, and I want to grow. 
My name's Wilson, and I'm an alcoholic. We show up at church, and we put on a dress, and we dance around. That's the difference. But I think I renew the culture we've cultivated, and we want to continue to cultivate, starts with this simple sign outside the door that says, for imperfect people only. If you're perfect, please step away from the building. If you're perfect, go to another church. Because this is for people who've said, I'm broken. I need grace. That's a big part of why we do small group. Small group is to be the space of grace that we extend towards each other. A space of safety. Where we're saying, hey, no matter where you're at, what you've done, who you are, I want to extend love and acceptance to you. And when you're in a relationship that's committed and that's safe because you're loved and accepted in the depths of your true self while you're laying on the floor bleeding out, that's when vulnerability can happen. That's when we're willing to show our scars and where we bleed and what in our depression. And friendship looks like that. I wonder if our small group can be that place for us. It's hard to do that on Sunday. I kind of force it with our question, like, when's the last time you thought about death? Or when did you feel most hurt in life, you know? But you sit with different people every week. Small group's supposed to be a place where we commit weekly to come together in a small community and be vulnerable and extend grace and say, you can be who you are here and be known and accepted here. And I see that with David and Jonathan. I see him running away. He's scared. He's in pain. He's afraid. And he lets Jonathan into that vulnerability because they have a relationship of commitment and grace. You know, these are some of my homies. Um, They're different pastors at different churches. And I get to fellowship with them about every other other month. Me and Kyle's been walking together for a few years now. Uh, We prayed for his daughter when... Um, when he was looking at adopting her, he invited me to speak at his church when someone at his church had passed away. And it was such an honor and fragile space for him to allow me to walk into. Eric is the pastor of Cerritos Baptist Church. He's super nice. And I always make fun of Kyle because I was like, dude, if I stop working at Renew, I'd rather work for Eric than for you because Kyle's all talking about like office hours for 40 hours and stuff like that. And then Greg and Monica are here. Um, he pastors South Bay Church in Torrance. If you know Todd and Nicole, they, they go to that church. And he's been a, an amazing part of our group. I've hung out with so many different pastors. And it's so much of my experience of the pastor world, and I fall into it, is like you're just fronting. You're just showing off how big your church is, how bad you are, your resume. It's pretty much exactly the same as the business world or the art world when you're networking. You're just trying to build value With these guys, we show up, and we don't even talk about what's going well, you know, or if we do, it's so brief. The bulk of it's like, dude, what's going wrong? How are we hurt? What are we wrestling with? How's our marriage? And it's such a refreshing place because we come in vulnerable, and we spend time just listening to each other's pain. You know, I have an accountability group for sexual addiction. And when, when we check in with each other and we had a hard week or we slipped up, the, one of the most uh, constant texts we receive is, you are loved and forgiven. The second text we often share with each other is, let's keep going. I'm not, I'm not walking away. I'm still here. 
I'm not going anywhere. And it's the space to fail. It's the space to struggle. It's the space to be weak. I pray for our small group that it would be that type of space, that our church would be that type of space. The next thing I see is that their relationship is based around truth. So David said, because they're disagreeing on what reality and truth is. David's saying, your dad's trying to kill me. Um, Jonathan's saying, no, he swore he wouldn't kill me. He told me the last time he wanted to kill you, and then he recanted and swore he wouldn't kill you. And David's like, no, seriously, he's trying to kill me. And so they started this litmus test. And I'll, I'll just summarize it for you. So David says, hey, tomorrow is the new moon festival feast. Your dad's going to expect me in the temple courts at dinner in mealtimes to celebrate with him. But why don't you, but I'm going to go to my family or I'm going to hide out here. And you tell your dad that you excused me to go to my family. If he's cool about it, if he's level-headed, you're right. He's not trying to kill me. But let's say he throws a spear or something, then he's probably trying to kill me. And so they, they agree upon this. Jonathan goes. The first day, Saul thinks he, David's sick. The second day, he asks Saul, where's David? And Saul's like, hey, I gave him permission to go to his family and to celebrate there in Bethlehem. And Saul throws a spear and curses out his mom, you know, calls her an adulteress. And then Jonathan's livid. He stands up. He talks back to his dad. He's silent the third day. They go out to the field, and he shares with David through this arrow and code thing that his life is in danger. And I think the third aspect of a godly friendship is that we're willing to discover and grow in truth, that neither of them were willing to live in an illusion. So we have this committed relationship in the context of grace where we can be vulnerable, And I think our generation wants that. We talk about safe space all the time, safe people. But I think one thing we leave out when we we use that word is that we are not asking for truth. But a godly relationship has truth integrated into grace. when, When it's truth without grace, it's judgmental, it's tearing down, we feel abandoned. But when it's grace without truth, we're enabling Sure, you can continue to drink alcohol. I'll accept you as you are. As I see you destroy your life and marriage. That's fine, right? That's what safe space, I think, has become. Here, Jesus and, and uh, Paul and Jonathan exemplifies that truth is a part of safety. Truth is a part of vulnerability. I, I, I think about, again, our pastor group. And um, Kyle sits down, and he's sharing about some of his struggles, and then he literally asks us these questions, right, Greg? Like, how am I thinking about this? Am I thinking about this wrong? You know, show me my pride. Show me my blind spots. Where, where, where am I going off? And I wonder if we even value truth in our life. When we have close relationships, are we inviting them in to help us think differently, to see the things that we don't see, to help us grow in truth? And so that's why it's the second pillar of our small groups, right? We come together, we're praying for a space of grace and vulnerability where we feel safe to be where we really are, but then we open up the word of God together, and we're discovering truth, and we're saying, God, in this safe space, would you illuminate the dark places in my life? Show me where I need to repent. Show me how I can grow 
Speak to me through your word and help me to invite other people to speak truth to me as well. I'm reading this book, Changes That Heal, from Henry Cloud. If you have your journals, you could go ahead and, and draw this out. It's, uh, he wrote Boundaries and other really popular books, but I think this is his fundamental book that sets the stage for why boundaries are even important. And he starts off with this. He says, real growth, maturity, and healing, whether it's spiritual or emotional, comes out of relationships. Right? So if you start at the bottom of the graph, this is you. When you allow yourself to be vulnerable, when you don't hide, when you present your true self in these kinds of relationships that are committed uh, over time, that are safe and filled with grace, that you could be who you are and not be rejected or abandoned or, or, or judged, and these relationships are willing to speak truth over you, over time, over a committed relationship, as time grows, you'll be mature. You'll grow in your faith in the Lord. You'll find healing. And ultimately, this is the perfect diagram for how we are to relate to the Lord, right? There's no greater friend than Jesus. There's no greater commitment anyone else will have with us than Jesus himself. He's covenanted himself to us. The Spirit lives inside of us. It's not going to walk away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so he's committed to us to the nth degree. He knows the truth of us, our best and worst moments. And he's died in order to extend us grace. And he whispers into our heart his word in order for us to change and to grow. He doesn't leave us as we are, right? He allows truth to penetrate us for growth. But what's the problem in our relationship with the Lord and in our relationship with community? There's this he calls redemptive time. Time doesn't heal. Redemptive time does in grace and truth. And it only heals us in the aspects that we are allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and true in these relationships. So you could be a Christian a long time, but hide deep parts of yourself from the Lord and never experience his grace and truth there. You could come to this community for 10 years and never allow people to truly know you. And to truly extend their grace and love into your life and commit to you. You can have superficial friendships for the lifetime of this church. Or you can commit to relationships in this room. You could commit to Jesus and walk in this space of grace where they accept you. And, and you can be known and vulnerable, but also where you can hear truth. Um. I just really like this slide. <laughs> so they're piecing his heart back together. You know, I, I, when, we, when we are hurt relationally, which all of our deepest wounds come out of, we have to be healed relationally. And I've seen people in their hurt step out of relationships and never find healing. When I think about David and Jonathan's relationship, it wasn't just built out of mutual interest. It wasn't just convenient. They didn't just click. But it says that they made a covenant of friendship before God, that God was between Jonathan and David and between David's descendants and Jonathan's descendants. They saw God as the focal point. And I wonder when we think about relationships in this room, is God the focal point? That we're committing to each other because God is the one who placed us together. So many times I talk to Jonathan, we meet up weekly, 
and we just reflect back and say, you're in my life because of God. He brought us together. I feel that way with many of you in this room, that you're in my life because God's brought me to encourage you and you to encourage me, to extend grace and truth together, to advance his kingdom together, that it's not happenstance, that we're friends because of a commitment that God wants us to make, that we are to grow as family together, that the grace I extend to you isn't just out of how much I love you, but it's through the cross. Because I love Jesus and have experienced his grace and acceptance in the depths of my depravity, I can extend his grace to you. I can extend his truth to you. As we move into small group, as we move into those kinds of relationships, do we, do we see God between us and each other? You know, one of the most precious friendships I have is with my father. And I think about father day, Father's Day today, and I'm going to conclude with the story. I really struggled in school growing up, especially because I couldn't read. I couldn't read till fifth grade. It's very hard to do well in school if you can't read. I especially remember being like, um, like a bluebird, which means you're at the lowest reading level, but they don't want to say that, you know, so they give different birds. And then um, we took turns reading, and when it was my turn, I just remember deep anxiety and trauma. All the eyes were on me, and I couldn't, I couldn't read this next word. And I just remember the teacher helping me or the students filling in, and I just stumbled my way through my turn. And then I ended up failing fifth grade, which I was embarrassed about for years. And then one day, my dad sat me down, and he, and he, he was so busy with owning a restaurant, but he said, Wilson, we're going to win the spelling bee. I was like, no, we're not. <laughs> Can we win the spelling bee with eight words? Because I know pronouns and articles, and I'm pretty much done. And he's like, no, we're going to win the spelling bee, and I'm going to work with you. I was like, all right, you work a lot, though. So he would work early morning to late at night, maybe 10, 9, 11 p.m., come home, take a little nap, and wake me up at 3 a.m. And from 3 to 6 or 7 a.m., we would memorize words for two months. And it was some of the sweetest times I ever had with my dad because we would just make tea together. And he didn't know phonics. And I didn't know phonics. So we memorized words like you would memorize Chinese characters. You just write it over and over again. And you, like, memorize the shape of the words. I know words by its shape. You know, like, oh, it has a T, a little, a little T in the middle. That means it's probably one of these words. It's, it's a terrible way to memorize words. But he created an amazing relational environment where I was never afraid to fail, where I could misspell and we would just try again. I never had that context to learn and fail before. And he was just so patient with me. And it was hours and hours of patience. I don't remember one day where he lost his temper or got annoyed or said I was stupid. And I felt that way through all of elementary school. I remember after um, doing two months or a month of this, I went into the smelling bee and I, and I, and I placed third place. And my teacher was shocked. Like, who is this kid? Is he cheating, you know? And then the next day, I went to the pentathlon, and I, and I got second place overall among, like, several schools. And every time I was awarded with math or an essay, I got first place. Amazing, right? Um, I was like, me? You know, they would say, Wilson Wang, you won essay. I was like, <gasps> and I would walk up, 
And then everyone's like, oh, my God, he won. And that happened like 10 times, and then I got second place over six times. What's a pentathlon? Five times. It happened like five times. And I remember that was one of my most um, tangible expressions of the space where commitment and grace and truth came together. Where I could be vulnerable and fail and misspell words over and over again, and it was okay. And then we grew, and I read, and I somehow have a master's degree. And that's what community needs to look like for us. It's not just being friends. It's not just hanging out. And it's not even just sharing vulnerably and just like, you're okay. But it's committing to each other and walking in truth together. I wonder if God's called you to this church. Some of you are just checking us out. And that's okay because I want you to discern ultimately whether he's called you here. Whether he's called you to that small group, to these friends. Because then you're not sitting as a critic. You're not weighing pros and cons. You're not looking over your shoulder. It's not another Facebook event where if something else comes better, you jump ship. And that's why you wrote maybe in the first place, right? It's God is in between us. And he's cultivating family here where we're committed where we extend grace and safety so that we can be vulnerable, where we share truth so that we can grow. We experience that from the Lord and from each other. God, we just come to you this morning, and I pray that you would redefine friendship for us because we've messed it up. Facebook messed it up. It's, 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 it's uh, Mark Zuckerberg's fault. You know, Instagram messed it up. We need you to show us how to do friendship again. We need to experience godly friendship again. And I pray that at this church, in this room, why we're here is because you've called people here to be friends and family in that way. To experience your redemptive grace. To grow, to feel safe, to be vulnerable. God, I especially pray for our small groups this week. That we would be people who commit to small group and say, I'm going to show up week in and week out, even when I'm tired. That I'm going to choose to be vulnerable and choose to extend grace when other people are vulnerable. I'm going to walk with these people and hear truth and invite truth into my life. God, I pray for a church that grows. Grows in our relationship with you and each other. That we would become more like you. I pray for David's and Jonathan's in this room. I've seen you do it over five years. I've seen really beautiful friendships form. I pray for more, Lord. Friendships that look like David and Jonathan, where we can say, I love their soul, that I love them like I love myself, and I'm covenanting to them. Would you do that? In Jesus' name.